0: Welcome to the Your Data Driven podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis and driving faster. Welcome to episode 19. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Brian Sims to the show. Brian has an absolute wealth of experience in motor racing, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the many stories he shares with us in the show. Today's focus is really around sponsorship. Brian was a sponsorship director for the Benetton Formula One team, but he also raised money for his own racing. We're going to explore how you can take his experience and his fundamental principles in order to maybe have a look at racing some sponsorship for yourself. It's another good one with some very, very funny stories along the way. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get into it.
1: So welcome, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, great to be here with you, Samir. Thank you very
0: much for taking the time. Again, I'm really excited about this conversation, seeing how it goes. It would be lovely to give us some background on yourself for the people who may not know who you are. And then, yeah, hopefully we can work towards one or two takeaways that people listening can think about in terms of their club racing and think, actually, yeah, that was a good point. I never thought of that. And that was a really good idea. And I'll give that a go. How, do, how does that sound for you?
1: There's a very old head with about 45 years of motorsport experience in it waiting to uh, to get going.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: I'll, I'll sit back over to
0: you. <laughs> um, go on then. Tell us a little bit about you so that uh, we can frame the conversation.
1: Okay. I I started off, I left school when I was uh, 17, and my first job, which really showed me that one day I would be a top world champion Formula One racing driver, was when I was asked in the builder's merchants that I was working in if I would put some wheels on the wheelbarrows, and I did that for the first three days of my career, fitting, blinking (laughs) wheelbarrow wheels (laughs) in the freezing cold in January. I I moved on, and and I joined – I became a a salesman for Goodyear Tire Company. I found that I was quite good at selling, learned a lot, and became a Xerox salesman selling Xerox photocopiers. And I went to the residential training school, Samir, that they had in those days for three weeks learning the skills of professional selling. And it was those skills that eventually took me into the world of Formula One
0: How do you make, sorry, that's not an obvious jump.
1: Let me explain. I was invited to a motor race meeting at Brands Hatch as a spectator. And this was in the late 60s. And I watched the racing going on and Formula Ford had just started. And I thought, wow, that looks exciting. I fancy that, but I had no money. And in those days, my salaries were were very low. But I worked at it and made up enough money, I saved up enough to go to a racing driver school called the Jim Russell School. Now, one of your previous guests, John Kirkpatrick, was the man who eventually owned that school. And John was, funnily enough, my first instructor when I went to Snedderton in 1972. How about that? Wonderful,
0: Absolutely wonderful.
1: And I started, I did the course. I still didn't have enough money. I saved up a little bit. But I realized. Did
0: did you do the thing? Because John was saying on the show that if you didn't have a lot of money, a whole purpose for those who are not familiar or haven't heard the previous show, the Jim Russell Racing School was very much about taking the man in the street and giving them an exposure to racing. And even by the end of the course, you'd have your race license, but not everyone could afford to do all of it. So uh, John was saying that they would sell corners as well like so you didn't have to do the whole course but they would just teach you how to do one particular corner over the over the over a period of time and people used to come
1: back and buy each corner of the track as they went round. i thought it was a fascinating story i did that and i did the same corner for five weeks running because the administration got the paperwork got mixed up when i went oh. racing at snetters and i was very fast around riches but i didn't know any of the <laughs> other. Only, only joking but the, the the thing was that was extraordinary was It it gave me the taste of single-seater racing in Formula Fords, and it was until you've driven a single-seater racing car, you cannot in any way compare it to a road car. It's a totally different experience. And I decided um, that I really wanted to go racing, and something happened, or had happened in 1968, which was extraordinary. Colin Chapman, who was the boss of the legendary Lotus Formula One team, spotted a change in the rules and regulations that ran motorsport, allowing for the first time ever advertising, commercial advertising on racing cars. And Colin did a deal with the John Player Cigarette Company, and the Formula One cars of Graham Hill and Jim Clark that year were painted in the colors of the Gold Leaf Team Lotus brand. And that was really the start of a revolution in sport, a revolution that swept from motor racing across all sports, sponsorship. And in 1974, I did my put together my first ever big sponsorship deal. I'd never raced a car by now. I was still saving up. And I spotted an opportunity and I put together this sponsorship deal with a nightclub in Kent called Victoria's Nightclub. And it allowed me to go racing at Brands Hatch in a Formula Ford. How did you go about doing that?
0: Just for the benefit of people who <laughs> may never have thought of getting sponsorship. I don't think well, a sponsorship in club racing is very, in my experience anyway, it's, it's very personal. So it's either coming from your, your own savings or from a family friend or something like that. It's, it's, it's not coming from a third party necessarily in that kind of business arrangement that you may have at a more professional level. So how did you go about doing that? because i'm sure it's still relevant
1: i worked it let me explain i the last big sponsorship i deal was i've done a couple of years two three years ago and the same technique applied and that in between i've been doing sponsorship deals throughout my 14 year professional racing career that took me up to and included group c racing which is very expensive it took me into formula one And I did over £45 million worth of deals in a year in Formula One for the Benetton Formula One team using the same principle. And that principle is very simple. Any company, whether they're small, large, big, corporate, global, whatever they are, has one primary objective. It has to sell more products or more services to stay in business. Pure and simple. Nothing else has changed in the business world, and it won't. What they do with that money and how they get that money may have changed, but the need to sell more products is there. So if you can engage a conversation with a business owner, even if it is, as in my case, a small local nightclub near Maidstone in Kent, I worked out a way, a very innovative way in which they could sell more subscriptions to their nightclub. That's what they're in business to do. Get more people in through the door, spend more money when they're in there. And I showed them how to do that in rather a cheeky way. But it got me the deal. And I was able to...
0: Because it's a nightclub as well. This is a a child-friendly show, by the way. So, you know, just keep it clean.
1: (laughs) It's very clean. Now, let let me explain. I'd seen a racing car, and it was in a a workshop very close to where I lived, near Maidstone. And I spoke to the owner, and I said, look, I, I want to ask a huge favor. The car, I think, was for sale for £2,500, ready to race with engine. And uh, I said, can I borrow the car for a day? And the owner said, no, you can't. You're not going to go racing or testing if that's what the idea is. I said, no, I don't want that. I said, my company car, which I had now, "had had a tow bar. I said, I don't want to even take the race car off the trailer. If you can put the car on a trailer, let me borrow it for the day, I think I stand a good chance of being able to buy the car from you. So what I did, I found out I'd been driving down the A20 towards Maidstone in Kent and I saw a big sign at the side of the road and it said, new nightclub opening in May, I think it was, if I remember rightly. And I did some research and I found that this nightclub was quite a big one and at the um, end of April they were going to have a businessman's lunch to launch the new club. So I did a little more research. I borrowed the car and I drove it, put the single seater, which is quite an attractive car. And of course, you don't see too many single seater cars uh, off a racetrack. So I put it on the trailer and I drove about a quarter of an hour before the start of this business lunch. And I went into the car park and I parked my car with the trailer and the Formula Ford on the back of it, smack bang in the middle of the car park, which was more or less empty. I walked into reception, I asked the lady in reception, could I speak to Mr. Uh, Gilkoff, I think his name was, the owner of the club From my research, and she said, what do you want to talk to him about? I said, I want to talk to him about selling subscriptions to his nightclub. Anyway, this guy comes out, and when I saw him, Samir, he was about six foot seven tall. Oh, my God.
0: I mean, at any point during this thing, this experience, were you feeling in in any way nervous at all? It just strikes me as quite a brave thing to
1: do. No, I was absolutely scared. <laughs> yes, he, he came up, screamed out into reception. And his first words were, is that your B-something racing car sitting in the middle of my car park? And I said, yes, it is. And before I could explain why, he said, go and move the and he described it in a very unusual way for a racing car. So, yeah. <laughs> I've got 100 business people coming <clears> here for lunch in an hour's time, in quarter of an hour's time. So I said, okay, I will. But can I ask you one thing? Could I come and talk to you about how we can use that car to help you get more subscriptions? He said, just go and move the wretched thing. Now, I looked out of the window. And by now, quite a lot of cars were driving into the car park. Businessmen were getting out. And almost without exception, they were all walking over and having a look at this Formula Ford. And I said, "Uh, Mr. Gorkov, before I go, look at that. Look at those people out there. Could you imagine if that car, painted in your distinctive aubergine and gold livery, were in the main shopping mall in in Maidstone on Saturday morning with one of your promotional girls selling uh, subscriptions, and then we took the car to race at brands during the season. Same thing, selling subscriptions. Can you imagine the interest there'd be? He said, go and move thee. But (laughs) as I went out the door, he gave me his business card. He said, give me a ring next week. And I put together the deal, and I raced for Victoria's nightclub for the entire season at Brands Hatch.
0: That's great. That's a wonderful story. But Um, the point being is that you focused on his needs, haven't you? You haven't gone in there saying, I want you to sponsor my car. I, 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 you've gone, look what this can do for you without really having to talk about yourself at all. You're just like, this is just all about you. And this is how this, your association with this racing car can benefit you and your business.
1: That's right. And I've done over a hundred major sponsorship deals in my career, ranging from Formula Ford right through GT racing. I was manager of the Grand Prix circuit in South Africa and did sponsorship there. I set up my own racing school in South Africa, the first ever in the country, a huge operation, and I got massive sponsorship for it. And it's always been for the same reason. I've been able to show them how I can help them either directly or indirectly sell more products or more services in a sustainable, measurable way. And that's how simple it is. I'm not the brightest on the planet, believe me. But I, that one I grasped in my head from the training school at Xerox, and I applied the business skills that I learned there to the world of sport. And I <clears throat> lectured now across a lot of sports. I was in Dubai recently running training programs for the International Cricket Council for their chief executive, their executive groups, World Rugby in Dublin. I've been to the Bahrain Olympic Committee training their people. It's still the same. Nothing changes
0: what would you suggest to someone who's never done this before maybe they've been racing a while but for whatever reason they're finding the budget harder to find and and it may not be a big number but it's still a number that is out of discretionary income at the moment what would you suggest to them in terms of approaching things would would you say you've got to go to a big company or would you say it's better to start a small company or is the most important thing to stay local or is it 100% 100% to do your research? What, what is it that you would say to someone who's never really, even, don't even know what they don't know about this kind of thing? And they may not even work in sales as their day job. This
1: is just be totally new for them, but they're still interested to give it a go. People might not like what I'm going to say, but I, I'm saying it for the right reason. If you have no idea how to go about approaching a company, no experience, and let's be honest, you take Formula 4 today, and this is a real hobby horse in mind. I I get very angry at the way that motor racing has allowed the costs to spiral, whereas a season, for example, of Formula 4 at the moment, which is the entry-level junior single-seater racing formula, with one of the reputable teams you're going to be looking at between 300 and £350,000 for your first season. Now, that to me is plainly obscene. If you're looking at something like 750 Motor Club, where you're looking maybe to run 40 or £50,000, you stand a much better chance. However, I would still suggest the best way to do it is to speak to somebody who has experience, who has got a track record in getting sponsorship, and... Even if it costs you a few hundred pounds to do it, spend money working with somebody to help either train you and give you an idea because it is not as simple as I make it sound in that way. It it is very simple in terms of helping a company sell more products or services, but you've still got to have an understanding of the business world as to how you can approach that company. How do you get have the credibility to get a meeting? How do you control that meeting? Over the years, I've done a, a huge amount of training in Porsche, Carrera Cup, tra- employed me to train their drivers, Formula Ford Association trained me, um, paid me to drive, train their drivers for a while. And what I find is that most of them haven't got a strategy. They literally think that getting sponsorship is listing what your last lap time was, how many photographs you can put of you on the track how many noughts you can put on the budget that you're going to need to go racing for the next 10 years, instead of actually thinking, what? how can I create a product, a sponsorship property, you can call it, which will help that company over there sell more products or services. It's as simple as that. Companies aren't interested in how many lap records you have, how many races you've won. They're interested in how is the money that I spend there going to improve my bottom line at the company by selling more products. If you want to be a racing driver and have your racing paid for, which I always did for 14 years, you've got to work at it. You've got to understand that you've got to get sponsorship. Sponsorship will do everything you want. It will give you more testing. It will give you more time on the simulator. It will give you a new helmet. It will give you all the travel expenses, whatever you want, if you do it correctly.
0: Yeah, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because people have got to come with an open mind, I think, in terms of how they approach that. And ironically, racing is quite a selfish sport. And so it's a bit of an unusual th- thought, really, is to possibly, I don't know, I'm just throwing ideas around here, but it's a, it's an alien, possibly an alien thought to be putting yourself in someone else's shoes in response of that you being, because you're serving them. With your sponsorship, yeah, the, yeah, you're serving them and they're paying for the for a service, and that's what the sponsorship is—the proposal of the product, the outcome is. So, you know, maybe that's unusual for people, but yeah, uh, that's one end. One end is raising the money to go racing, and and you touched on this already, but the other is reducing the cost of of entry uh, you come at it at both ends of the scale can't you so what are your thoughts if you i don't know say you were say you were talking to someone at motorsport uk or something like that and they're doing a big push to try and help make motorsports more accessible and i'm sure this is happening all over the world with motor racing in general and their governing bodies what kind of things would you say from your experience would would be things that maybe they should be looking at that that we haven't yet seen um, I mean, just a, just a, I don't want to turn it into a, an awkward conversation, but I just, in general, because also we get a lot of people listening to the show who aren't in the UK. In general, what would you, what were the kind of things that you were saying that would apply anywhere, really?
1: I think, first of all, that we've allowed the costs of motor racing to rocket. There's too I know this might be a little bit contentious, but I think there's too much motor racing. There are too many categories. And I think what is needed is a very clear split between, how can you call it, amateur racing and professional motor racing. It's very difficult. I I think you and I were talking earlier about this, Samir. You go into something like the 750 Motor Club or uh, a cheap form of racing, Citroën C1, fabulous category of racing. The problem is it's no good going in there and saying, I hope that's going to get me to Formula One. Because the problem is that the two routes are totally different. There was a young driver, uh, I did a lot of training with the uh, British racing drivers club, their young superstars and the rising stars program. And there was a young driver called Dino Zamparelli, who was sitting on one of the courses and Dino was on the single seater route. He, he'd won the formula Renault championship, but he recognized that without money, he wasn't going to go any further. And he, after the course, he did something that not, not many people do. He actually rang me and thanked me. He said, Brian, I learned so much. In fact, he said, I'm going to tear up a presentation that I was due to do in a couple of weeks' time and start again because he said, I can see that my presentation was all about what I wanted and nothing to do with what the company would really get out of it. And he said, could I ask you to have a look through that, which I did. And it led to my over the next year and a half, not on a professional basis, but just helping Dino because I'm a great believer in trying to help people who help themselves. And he was doing, um, looking for a budget for GP3, with a little bit of help from me, but off his own impetus, he went out and, believe this or not, found nearly one and a half million pounds for two seasons of GP3 racing. He raced there, and then he said to me, "I want to go." Formula 2 now. The sponsors weren't interested in that. But he said, okay, fine. He then switched to Porsche Carrera Cup. And he said, I wanted to go Formula 1. We all want to go Formula 1. But at some stage in your career, you've got to take a clear look and say, do I want to go Formula 1 so much that if I don't get there, I won't do anything else? Or do you change route and say, I didn't really want to go sports car racing, but the number of drives and the cost of sports car racing is so much cheaper. And that's what he did. And he switched to Porsche Carrera car and and res for the next four years in that professionally. So you've got to be very flexible and you've got to understand that there are ever at any one time at the best 22 jobs going in Formula One. (laughs) That's all there are the chances of you getting to Formula 1 are so slim, it's rather winning the lottery. But if you widen your scope and look at touring car racing, look at single-seater racing, at a historic level maybe, Formula Ford, historics, or others, then it becomes far more reasonable. But the problem is you've got to make a decision very early in your career because if you're going to go and be a professional racing driver in Formula 1 and go that level, You've got to do it so early. And quite frankly, I think it's out of the reach of so many people. So be realistic. Look at what you probably could afford with a little bit of sponsorship and then work from there. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I, I think it's a fascinating insight. It's just, I'm not sure how many people listening will – actually, they'll find it interesting, I'm sure. It's, many, many people may have been on that route or, as well which is also fascinating. You touched on historic racing, and that's something that's really blossomed in the last few years in my experience. And it actually attracts a lot of professional drivers, and you get this mixture of pro-am drivers. What's your thoughts on historic racing and, and, and where that's going?
1: Well, it's rather timious that you uh, mention historic, Samir, in as much that I'm just, I've just formed a new organisation in this country, internationally called the Historic Racing Association. But you have a
0: habit of forming organisations. By the way, this is a kind of a lifelong thing of yours. This is not the first organisation by the salary no. that you've created. Well,
1: 20, 27 years ago, I started the MIA. No, th- there's, there's a reason for this, and, and that is that historic racing is by far the biggest growth sector of motorsport worldwide. All over the world, historic racing is providing – for many reasons, which we won't go into now, some fantastic, entertaining, exciting driving. I went to the Monaco historic Formula One race the year before last. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, the reaction of the crowd when the John Player Special came out of the tunnel, the noise, the sounds, when the um, little Formula Three cars came out and, and the Formula One cars from the 60s that looked like a Formula Ford car came out. There were grown men and women with tears in their eyes. It was extraordinary. And you go to the Goodwood Revival or you go to the Silverstone Classic, it's a fantastic. The problem is it has become very popular. It is very fragmented. So many different categories of racing, historic Formula Ford, classic Formula Four, being one of the biggest now. But it is under threat because anybody with any foresight at all can realize that there are going to be people who say we should ban motor racing across the board. And Historic will be one of the first because obviously it uses combustion engine. So what I've done is to work with a very big organization, Kimberley Media Group, who are produce some of the big publications in historic racing and other racing. And we're going to provide an umbrella organization to promote and protect the interests of historic motorsport worldwide as a whole. So that's the answer to the question. I I love historic racing. I think it's got a a huge following, and not surprisingly. A lot of young drivers, incidentally, whose fathers or whatever reason cannot afford to go Formula 4 are going into historic Formula Ford. And for about a fifth of the budget getting experience driving single-seater racing in big grids around all the different racetracks in the country so there's another opportunity there for, for youngsters to look at
0: yeah you're absolutely right it's have some friends of mine the race historics so we've got an escort mark two escort and so we've done some of the goodwood meetings and things and it's it's got such a great feel to it is that the paddocks are so open the access is so you know, so great a goodwood For the benefit of people who aren't familiar with it, you're quite often required to dress up into period clothing as well as racing period cars. So it just makes the whole atmosphere wonderful.
1: It is. It's amazing how relaxed it all is. And also, I think another reason it became apparent when I was just watching, for example, I went to Brands Hatch for the historic Masters Formula One last year. Just watching those Formula One cars being driven around the circuit, they don't handle in the way that modern Formula One cars do. They don't go around on rails. They are animals. And, and having worked in Formula One myself uh, as manager of the Grand Prix Circuit so- at South Africa at Kyle Army in the eighties, talking to drivers like Keki Rosberg, Nikki Lauda, Nelson Piquet, Nigel Mansell, all these sort of guys, those cars were animals. They had to be really physically thrown around. And I think it's no coincidence you see a driver get out of a, a 1980s or 1990s Formula One car, they are exhausted. They get out of the modern ones, they look as if they can go and have another race straight after without any problem. Did he talk to those drivers at the time? Yes, yeah. I, in fact, I had James Hunt was at my house partying, and James was going to drive a tractor for me in a tractor race that I put on the morning of the Grand Prix. Can I tell Different you? Different the- one. Yeah, go on. Go, yeah, yeah, go on. This well, story, it, yeah, go on, tractor story. But in 1975, I'm sitting on a plane flying from London to Johannesburg to go and visit my parents who lived in South Africa. And uh, I was going to go and see – I got a ticket to go to the South African Grand Prix at Kailami. And I'm reading autosport and traveling down. And the man next to me said, "Uh, I see you're reading autosport magazine. I said, yeah, do you want to borrow it? He said, no, I've got one. He said, you, you obviously like racing. And I said, yeah, I love racing. I've just started. He said, what are you doing? So I'm racing Formula Ford. He said, wow, that's a great starting point. And he said, where are you heading? And I said, I'm going to the South African Grand Prix. He said, when you get there, come and see me. And that man was Max Mosley. And Max Mosley, who went on, he was then the boss of the March Formula One team, went on to become the president of the FIA, the governing body of motorsport, of course. And uh, two years later, four years later, I went back to South Africa, and Kyle Army, the Grand Prix circuit, was up for sale. So I rang Max in England, and I said, Max, has it been sold? He said, actually, I think it has. He said, why? And I said, maybe I can get a job there, teaching or doing some marketing or sponsorship. So he said, leave it with me. Next morning, I got a phone call from the guy who um, owned the circuit, Bobby Hartsleaf. He said, if Brian would like to meet me this evening at 4 o'clock at the Kailami Ranch Hotel for a coffee, Max said I should talk to you. At 6 o'clock that evening, I walked out as the manager of the Formula One Grand Prix in uh, circuit in South Africa. Wow, as things get done quick. But like it. <laughs> the drivers came down. They, they, all the cars used to arrive in the containers in those days. They were shipped down. And the race weekend started, and then there was a threat. The drivers were very upset over a licensing issue and threatened to go on strike, and then did go on strike, led by Niki Lauda. So you've now got a situation where all the teams have traveled 6,000 miles to South Africa. You've got the crowd all coming up from all over South Africa to attend the race. And the drivers sitting in a coach locked themselves in and said, we're not racing until this thing's sorted. And uh, yeah, so that was that was a baptism of fire. I was going to say, that's quite an experience.
0: <laughs> You're not talking about apexes and breaking points with these
1: guys. It's something else. Yeah. The James Hunt thing was fun because uh, James had just finished his career. And he was now a commentator with Murray Walker for BBC. And they were a dynamic pairing. They didn't get on very well, but the, the best commentary team ever, in in my opinion and many people's opinion, because James was very irreverent. He'd say it as he saw it. He didn't try and butter up people that might be able to get him something for, for, for nothing with a new car or something like <laughs> that. He was really down to earth. And I'd organized on the morning of the Grand Prix a tractor race I'd got a sponsorship deal from Deutz, the German tractor company. I had 24 brand new tractors, big things, on the track already. It was a race. Uh, We were going to have a big prize for charity. And I had eight of the Formula One drivers, eight members of a TV soap opera in South Africa, and eight members of the British Speedway team who were out in South Africa. And James agreed to race as the major sort of personality of the race. He came to my house the night before with Max and uh, a couple of other drivers who I knew quite well, and parted quite hard. Didn't turn up for the tractor race the next day. We ran the race. Carlos Reutemann, the Argentinian driver who won the Grand Prix as well in the afternoon, won the tractor race, and I got a beautiful letter from James. And he said, "Brian, I write to you with my tail firmly between my legs. Not only did I let the charity down, not only did I let you down. Not only did I let the crowd down by not turning up, I let myself down. And I thought it takes a big man to say that. And just to end the story, in 1993, I was out in South Africa at the Grand Prix, the last ever South African with Lola Formula One. I was with them. We had Kelly Alberto driving for us. And in the evening, I was invited to dinner with James, with Tony Jardine, the ex-commentator. And three months later, James was dead. Heart attack. 44, mm. five years old. Fabulous man. What if only Formula One had the characters like James today?
0: Oh, that's a lovely story. Have you seen down. the film Rush? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Several times.
1: Well, oh, yeah. I, I was in Bahrain three, four years ago and I met Nicky Lauda and asked him, I said, Nicky, talking about Kyle Armey and, and he's going on how he used to love coming down winter testing in South Africa. He said, it was always an absolute pleasure. And I said that film, Rush. How accurate do you think that was? He said it was scaringly accurate, Brian. He said I hadn't realised till I saw the film how close I came to actually not being around anymore. Wonderful yeah. man, Nicky Loudon.
0: Absolutely, another one lost, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, this is wonderful, Brian. Thank you for so much for coming to to share your views. I think people will be fascinated to. to hear the stories but also to pick up some ideas about how they can maybe raise some money for their own racing
1: but just one final thing i I would say yeah you you touched on it earlier samir about whether sponsorship whether you look locally or whatever the the, the two tips i would give anybody the first thing you've got to do is to make your sponsorship opportunity find out all the capabilities just sit down I, I do this for hours on end with a whiteboard, throwing ideas on the board, whether they're sensible or not. What can I do for a company with my motor racing that will help? And, and, and an example of that, if it's a food company, what are they likely to want um, above all else to sell more food? The opportunity to maybe sample product sampling, a soft drinks company. They want people to try the drink. So what better, you're at a motor race meeting, you've got maybe 2,000 people there in the crowd, and say to them, look, one of the things we can do for you, if this is something you, you, you need, we could arrange to have some product sampling there for people They can come up and have free drinks and try it all out. Think about it that way. And then the other thing is to think about local companies. You're not going to go and get a, a, a sponsorship for racing a mini, in mini challenge from Pepsi Cola Worldwide. Let's be honest. You've got to go, though, maybe to your local builder's merchants. And one of the things that I've done a lot of deals over the years with companies that sell other people's products. So go to a builder's merchant. They don't sell just their own brand. They sell maybe Black & Decker drills, Stanley drills. They sell paint. They sell clothing. And if you can work with them to get some of those brands to club together and come in with them on a small program, It splits the cost incredibly and you can deliver so much more by offering to have your car there on a Saturday morning to meet people. They can do a track day with some of the customers and you've got to think about it. And the other thing, finally, I was born with two quite large ears and those ears allowed me to ask the first of all, ask a question and then sit and listen to what the company is telling you. Ask them, what are the things that stop you selling more products and services? Shut up and let them tell you. And then try and work out the capabilities of your product. What can you do to help them solve that problem? Rather than going in blazing, telling them everything that you've done in your life and what a great racing driver you're going to be and how you want to be a Formula One driver. Does that
0: help? Yeah, I think they're absolutely great tips, Brian. It's the overarching message is it's about them, not you. But those practical tips there are really going to help people turn that into an actionable thing. And maybe people can now start to imagine themselves. Yeah, OK, I could actually see myself approaching the local builders, merchants or another local business and thinking again about how they can put together a, a solution that's going to help you all. I think sponsorship is one of those strange subjects, particularly at club racing level, because it's still optional. Yeah. And therefore, we'd rather not do it if we didn't have to. Because we've got enough to do preparing a car and getting to the track and doing entries, and it's another thing. And do we really want to not spoil our hobby, be distracted by these kind of things. But I don't think it necessarily needs to be like that. I think it can be quite positive and fun for all involved, as well as helping pay for the the actual participation in the racing. But I think it can actually have some other value.
1: You've hit a a very good point there. A lot of people, I say to them, let me tell you now, that the first problem when you get sponsorship, and I found that all those years ago, and then when I actually... Can you imagine ending up, I I had a contract with Mercedes to race touring cars in South Africa, a lot of money. Suddenly, the pressure starts to go on you. When you are doing it, you found the money from borrowing it and begging and stealing and everything and whatever you want to do. That's one thing and you can go racing and enjoy it. When you've got the pressure of having a sponsor there and, and they don't turn around and say, I've only given you a little bit of money so I won't put much pressure on. They think because they've sponsored you, that gives them the right to say, what are you doing running around in 15th place? That doesn't help me. That's the reality of the world. So that is a very pertinent question as to, should I even be bothering with a sponsor? Is it going to ruin my racing and and enjoyment? If you do decide that you want it, then you've got to be prepared to, as temporarily described it, said, I have a helmet on at weekends and I have a bowler hat on during the week. In other words, I'm a businessman all week trying to get the money, and I go racing at weekends. But you have got to be very honest with yourself, and and it's no good saying, yeah, I want the money, but I don't want to put the work in to help the sponsor get the money out. And motor racing has got a terrible reputation, Samir, for burning fingers of companies where so many people I speak to in the business world say, oh, yeah, we used to sponsor motor racing driver came in he was going to do this that and the other for us got it went off had the money never saw him again till it was the day of the renewal he came back and wondered why he wasn't getting a renewal and thereby lies mm. the problem and, and that was true even in Formula One I got some amazing stories I could tell you of working with um, FedEx and how Benetton Formula One managed to lose FedEx as a sponsor it, it, it's extraordinary
0: I find that fascinating but I suppose that comes down to your own Personal values, maybe, and and what you what you value personally. I'd find that quite rude if I haven't fulfilled my obligations. But maybe other people are not quite as uh, comfortable with that. Or or also, or there's more to the story. Possibly, there's more to the story. There's always two sides. But it does does strike me as uh, odd. But equally, maybe not unsurprising. Unfortunately,
1: yeah, you're right about it being on both sides. Formula One. When I was at Benetton, I remember sitting down with, I won't mention the name, but he was the CEO at the time of Benetton Formula One. And I actually spoke to him and, and, and explained that FedEx were very unhappy about the way they were being treated. And his words to me were, they are more bloody trouble than they're worth. And the problem is Formula One grew up on tobacco sponsorship. When I was, when I started uh, as an agent with Benetton, I was earning, we were getting, million a year from the Japan Tobacco Company for the Mild7 brand. And all they wanted was brand awareness. They wanted just the name on television. 70% of their sales were in Asia. They didn't want anything else. So when I came along bringing FedEx, Gillette, DHL, Marconi, these big companies, brand awareness to them wasn't what they wanted. What they wanted was an increased share of business. And Formula One could not come to terms with that. And they literally found the whole process a complete pain in the butt because it meant they had to do a lot of work to maintain a sponsor. And therein lies the problem. Oh, we're too busy. We're we're going racing. Well, then you shouldn't be looking for that level of money if that's the case. You can't have it both ways.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? So part of me thinks it's a great subject for club racing. And historic racing. Because it's gonna help people go racing for less outlay of their own. Like you say, you get all the benefits, more testing, more tires, everything you want. And then the other part of me goes, is this really a subject that people want to bother with? Because it it's a job really, or it's hard work and it does require a certain personality and a certain a mental approach and, and you the last thing you wanna do is It's turned someone's hobby, their relaxation, their pastime, into something that they're
1: not enjoying. It's a very valid thought. Forget about how good you are on the track. A a company couldn't give a monkey's, quite frankly, unless you're promoting a product that is a technical product that goes with the car. And so success on the track is important. A lot of people in motor racing, and it, it comes back to your point, Be very careful about wanting sponsorship. A lot of people dream the results of having a lot of money. What they don't want to know is the hard work that goes in between wanting that dream to come true and making it come true. Historic racing, they have a problem in as much that a lot of historic racing won't even allow sponsorship on the cars other than the original decals. People don't want to put anything else on there because the Saudia Williams Formula One cars, as they were, they don't want to. Cover them over with Burt's fish and chip shop in Dagenham, do they? So that cuts out one of the elements of sponsorship as well. And then when you've got it, that's only the start. So your point is a very valid point. I think
0: it's fascinating. I, I think the historic, and this might make you smile actually, the historic situation is such that it, because you can't put contemporary stickers on the car, it makes you focus more on what is the value that you're actually giving to your sponsor? Because if you think they're getting value from visibility and putting a sticker on the car, and that's it, then you've not necessarily thought it through. Because like you say, how does that help them sell more? Where's the connection? Can you be more proactive? So you can still, I think, put a sponsorship package together for it in historic racing, but you just have to maybe
1: think about it a bit more deeply. To get money, sometimes it's not even sponsorship. Can I just tell you one little story about the BBC? I needed more money than I could get sponsorship this particular season. And I went to the BBC, and I went to see a guy called David Croft who wrote Dad's Army, Are You Being Served? All those big sitcom programs from the 70s and 80s. And I got the right to, produ- to work with the cast of Are You Being Served, the television series set in Grace Brothers, the departmental store, to teach youngsters in shops how to sell. And that led to working with John Cleese and doing a training program with John Cleese, who had a big uh, sales training company as well. So you've got to you've got to be very innovative, and you've got to look for opportunities. But always think about what you can offer them, not what they can do for you. That will come naturally if you can offer them enough. They'll want to be there. They want to help. And that's it. End of story.
0: That's that's absolutely wonderful, and I, I think that's a great place to. to to leave it for today and to get people thinking. I look, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been absolutely fascinating and and I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Samir, it's been a pleasure inviting me on and I really enjoyed it today and I enjoyed talking with you and um, as I say, I really look forward to keeping in touch with you.
0: What an amazing story Brian has to share. It's wonderful to hear his passion still burns brightly for motorsports as well as his desire to help others with their sponsorship and with their racing experience. I really hope you enjoyed that show and gave you food for thought and hopefully a little bit more confidence around raising money for your own racing and maybe you might want to give some of his ideas a go. Thanks again, see you next time. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us, yourdata-driven.com.